we um we talk about dad's jokes a lot and we portray in the media the role of dads in society a bit you know the 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 earthly fatherly heroes of peter griffin and homer simpson get around a lot stuff like that and i'm you know what i'm thinking no 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 there's got to be more to it than that when i think about the fact that we look to god as a father there's got to be something more uh, substantial to it than simply just drawing away dad jokes and and uh, and all that sort of stuff. So I've been doing some prayerful searching and looking into some things there. And I found there's been a few surveys carried out concerning fathers and the faith of their children. There are varying results from different sources. They all tell a relatively common story. In 1994, there was a survey in Switzerland, of all places, trying to look at religion and the next generation and how parents play their part in that. Here's one of those results. If you get a standard church family where both father and mother are regular attendees, they're using faith, but they're gauging it by church attendance in this particular survey as a as a, a, an idea to do with faith expression here. If both the father and mother attend regularly in church, this survey found that 33% of their children will end up as regular churchgoers and 41% will end up attending irregularly, so they'll be part-timers. Therefore, it's about a quarter of their children are likely to end up not practicing their faith at all. That's a regular everyday church family playing the odds there. Now, I pray for a greater success than that, and I pray for every one of our children succeeding in their faith. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to, I don't want to accept stats and go, oh, well, I want to see every single child succeed. I want every parent to succeed with the children in their faith. But that benchmark of 33% ending up as regular churchgoers, just keep that in mind. Look at this. If the father is irregular and the mother is regular, from 33%, only 3% of the children will become regular churchgoers and 59% will be irregular and 38% will actually not go to church at all. If a father is non-practicing at all and a mother is regular, you go from 3% down to two percent of kids who regularly attend a faith community 37 percent irregular 60 percent of their kids unlikely to actually connect with the church at all in their future years they then turn the figures around the other way instead of a father is regular but a mother is irregular or if a mother is non-practicing how do you think the stats go If mum's irregular, that figure goes from 33% regular attendance to 38% regular attendance. If mum is non-practicing and dad is regular, the figure is not 33%. The survey was found to have that figure to jump to 44%. It's amazing. It's like they found that the loyalty to a father's commitment grew in proportion to mother's laxity or non-participation. It's huge. 
And where neither parent practices, to nobody's surprise, 4% of children will actually become regular attendants of a church. 15% will become irregular and 80% roughly or 81% will be lost to the faith. The conclusion was this. If a father is solid and regular in their expression of faith, and in particular their faith attendance, their faith community attendance, regardless of the practice of the mother, between two-thirds and three-quarters of their children will become churchgoers in their adult life. But if a father has faith but is inconsistent, regardless of his wife's devotion, between half and two-thirds of their offspring will find themselves coming to church regularly or occasionally. So it's kind of the father's faith has this really strong presence in a Christian family home. So when we're talking about dad jokes, dad jokes, dad jokes, no, then we come back to this, go, wow, fathers, you are not a joke in your home. The role that you play is so serious. And, uh, and so I just want to encourage you to, to really press in Seek the will of God for your, for your life, for your personal practice as a, as a man, but also for the way the family is going. Really seek the Lord for that and intercede for your kids and, 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 and be as solid a believer as you can be, for it will be a blessing to your family. No pressure at all, right? <laughs> We've been exploring Acts over the last few months. Marguerite last week covered a whole heap of ground as she surveyed a big part of Paul's travels. And in amongst that, sorry, it was two weeks ago she did that. Or last week? Lost, lost track. One of the elements in that time looked briefly at a fella and his household in Philippi. She had nowhere near enough time to actually cover that ground, but I really want to flesh that out a little bit today. I want to explore how a father's faith encounter transformed his entire family. So we're going to read Acts 16, verse 16 to 34 is our passage today. And uh, you'll be able to follow on screen along with me as well if that works. Once when we were going to the place of prayer... We were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. And she kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. 
About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights. He rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his home. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he'd come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Wow. Paul and Silas are having a bit of a bad day. A bad few days. There's there's effective ministry, obviously, but there's a bit of an uproar going on around them that's not of their own doing, despite what the magistrates are being told here. They've been followed around the city of Philippi by a crazy demon-possessed slave girl shouting out who they are. Marguerite suggested it was a religious spirit that was at work here. Not a bad suggestion. Paul, we do read though, has had enough. This is not the sort of advertising he's wanting to get. This is not the sort of evangelism he thinks is effective. He's had enough. And he tells a demon in her to go and she's suddenly restored completely to her right mind. Extremely good news for this young girl, right? Imagine the turmoil and, the ter- and, the, and, the, and on all that struggle and inside damage going on. Imagine that just lifting and stopping. Freedom for a young girl, but not so much good news for her owners. All of a sudden, their cash cow was dried up. And the punishment for doing good by these Christian men is a public beating and a night in the stocks. And a jailer is given strict orders to lock these guys up securely. Ancient jailers and governments weren't too concerned with humane treatment for prisoners here. They've been beaten. There's probably blood. There is wounds because they've been washed. They've been beaten up a little bit here. And now they're chucked in stocks. They're actually stuck in the middle of a cell with a timber stocks that says they're feet are in stocks it's not about putting the hands in like the ones you see at Fremantle prison their feet and they're in different stocks which would actually be have different holes which could actually determine how far you actually made that person stand forcibly in the middle of a cell and you could be like this chained up into stocks having been beaten bloodied and bruised cramping the daylights out of yourself and this is the state you're in all night trying to sleep and this is about midnight they're like this you know blood nose black eyes beats all over them and they're having a worship night 
Joy of the Lord is my strength. You know? Man, let's remember that when we get out on a Sunday morning into our warm cars and (laughs) creature comforts coming into the house of God. So we've got a very uncomfortable night ahead there. The jailer was not the sort of guy to mess around with either. What we have here is a rough and tough sort of guy who works hard and probably plays hard too. But he's also a loving guy committed to feeding, loving and caring for his family. He's a family man. He's got a whole household to, to look out for here. But he's a prison guard. He's, he's not the guy that he's, he's no, no just, you know, this guy's a pretty hard fella. Could well be like a lot of our dads that we know. Could be a little bit like me if I wasn't, you know, if I was a, a parent, if I was sort of out in the workforce outside of a church setting, I, you know, I'd be a bit like this. Definitely a bit like my late stepdad, Ross the Truckie. But we read here that this tough guy has been hit by an earthquake. And I love some of the poetic people who write about this passage. And they say, you know what? He got hit by two. He was hit by two earthquakes. Hit on two fronts. He got a physical earthquake. That's no doubt woken him up. He's obviously gone to wherever these guys are to check out where the epicenter is and what's going on. And that's when the second one hits. The emotional turmoil when all that you know to do is up in the air all of a sudden. All the prison doors are wide open. And that guy goes into crisis. If a prisoner escaped, the jailer got the punishment the prisoner would have faced. And if one prisoner who was going to get 10 floggings escaped well fine you do the time you you know you you know, you, you, you take it and come imagine your whole jail emptying out imagine some of those guys due for some beatings and some floggings imagine some of those guys probably on death row imagine all of that coming to him at once and the crisis that he's got and the only way out is to pull a sword and go you know what i'll do it the quick way otherwise the romans are gonna have a field day with me That's where he's at. There's no other response but to do the unthinkable. And thankfully, that's where Jesus steps in. And in the aftermath of these earthquakes, he finds hope. And it's a hope that will save his entire household if he responds the right way. We see in that passage that this burly knockabout tough guy does just that. He responds exactly as Jesus wants him to. And in the wake of both the physical earthquake and the emotional one that came with it, we see this jailer display a handful of things which led to his entire household coming to faith in Jesus. These three things that I'm going to outline real quickly... These things on the surface don't sound like big, tough guy things. But in the spiritual realm, only the toughest of people can do them. 
So here we go. Three things that dads can model that will revolutionize their spiritual home. As demonstrated by a Roman jailer. First up, the first step for this jailer was humility. There's a tough guy word for you. This is the ability to come both humbly towards God and to others who you know can help you. We read when he hears all the prisoners have actually remained in the prison that no harm is going to come to them and no harm is going to come to him. He can only see that as a miracle and he stops and thinks about what he is now actually in the middle of. What is going on here? What events are happening here? What on earth has just taken place? He could easily have gotten rough and thrown everyone back in their cells, locked them up and gone back to his desk and put his feet up again. But he couldn't. There was definitely something going on here. There's an undeniable power accompanying these two fellows in their prison cell. And with all the events going up that led to these guys' arrest and all the things going on, that how these guys behaved when they were arrested. There's no, this guy's coming, you know, I can't, I can't deny this anymore. Something's going on here. I need what you got. He unashamedly falls at their feet. It's an act of surrender. He's not ashamed to bring them to meet his family. He's not ashamed to ask the $64,000 question, what must I do to be saved? He goes, I acknowledge the turmoil. I acknowledge the earthquake. I acknowledge my need and I acknowledge you have the answer I'm looking for. Absolute humility in a man about to reach out to Jesus. Proverbs 3.34 is worth making note of. Why? Because both Peter and James echo it. He mocks proud mockers, but shows favor to the humble and oppressed. What's grace? Unmerited favor. In the Gospels, we read the words of Jesus. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. If you want to lift yourself up, God will deal with that. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Humility is a trait that sounds weak but requires the greatest of strength and strictest self-control. It is the birthplace of submission to rules and the law. It is the birthplace of putting others above yourself. Humility sets the groundwork for a number of other successful traits in us. If exercised right, it will provide a fantastic Christ-like example for our kids. And this jailer in our story is right where Jesus needed him to be. In that place of humility and he could receive the ministry that he and his family needed. Humility. Massively. The jailer then displays servanthood. The guy who was employed to inflict pain, who was under orders to treat these new prisoners poorly, defies all that and chooses to serve instead. We see his response to the gospel is to serve the men of God here. 
He treats their wounds. He ensures their personal welfare. He goes to great lengths and huge risks to his own position for the sake of the welfare of these men. When you look at the rapid-fire nature of the events in the story, they had their wounds washed and immediately they were baptized. Some scholars actually suggest that he and his family were baptized in the prison compounds in the same body of water that was used to wash the wounds. In Matthew 20, Jesus told his disciples, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be a slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's the ultimate of service right there. In God's economy, greatness comes not by the number of toys, not by the climbing of social or corporate ladders, but by the way a person engages in serving others. 1 Peter 4 says this, Love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its very forms. If you speak, you should do, do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If you serve, you should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. As a youngish man standing before you today, I can come to you telling you that I learned to serve through my stepdad. In the house of God and in Christian service, I got the trait of servanthood from my dad. As a boy, I learned that service was to be a natural outward expression of devotion. It's not a replacement for devotion. Oh, I'm saved because I paint the church. No, saved because of Jesus' grace and your faith, nothing more. But a natural byproduct of devotion to Jesus is service. My dad was a quiet achiever. He was not a very expressive man. Had a lot of faults. But out of his love for Christ, he had a natural service gift. And he dragged me along for the ride. I learned by going with my dad to early church morning prayer meetings where church members would meet and pray for each other, lay hands on each other and, and offer ministry to each other before the day ahead. I learned this by working alongside him on Saturdays, picking up a paintbrush, either in the church auditorium or in someone's home. I learned this on Sunday mornings by getting out of bed at 7 in the morning. On a Sunday morning to jump in a big 22-seat bus and go with him to a suburb quite a distance away and pick up a busload of Samoans who didn't have cars who could come and worship at church at 10 o'clock. And I was in the passenger seat getting to know them all, giving him directions and reminding him who's coming and who's not. Galatians 6, Paul writes this, let's not become weary in doing good. 
for at the proper time we'll reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. See, when we serve and when we do good things for others without complaint or weariness, we reap a harvest. Part of that harvest is our kids catching what you have and do. And finally, I love this one. This dad showed transparency. We read that the jailer gets baptized and he's already breaking all the rules, right? So much for the stocks. So much for the harsh treatment. So much for doing everything the magistrate said here by this stage. He's actually gone to a whole new level again by letting the prisoners out of the prison cell, out of the compound, into his home. And not a police clearance in sight. And he sits them down and he offers them a meal. In Eastern culture, the act of eating a meal in your home was one of the most intimate things you could do. It was so powerful that bitter rivalries were laid to rest if someone ate ate together. The jailer brought the people of God into the most inner workings of his life. That's what our home is, right? That's the innermost, that's the inner sanctum of who we really are. And he's done so without notice. Couldn't even text his wife. Honey, I'm bringing some friends over. None of that. It's about one, two in the morning. The house is not perfectly clean. The bills are still stuck to the fridge. The atmosphere is fresh off whatever had been spoken or done just minutes before. Have you ever walked into a house or walked into an environment where a harsh conversation has taken place? Everyone's all smiles, but it's electric, right? It's like you could, you, you, you could it's like static. <laughs> they won't tell you, but the air is thick. And none of that mattered to this jailer. In his newfound faith, he wasn't worried about what he looked like. And instead, he let his whole life be on display for these men of God. Got to a place where there was nothing to hide. In 1 John, the apostle calls for a transparency before God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. In other words, we get before God and go, yep, here I am. I know what I've done wrong. So do you. And I'm here to to do business with you, God. Goes on to say this, if we claim we've not sinned and we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So we try to hide and yeah, God, you've got nothing to look at here. nuh uh -uh. James calls the believers to be transparent before each other. Chapter 5. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make them well. 
the Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, they'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Over the years, I've learned something, that transparency is the opposite of hypocrisy. Both present a flawed person. Both do not, neither project perfection. But transparency owns our our imperfection, owns our flaws, owns where we're at. Hypocrisy tries to hide it. The world will forgive a transparent person if they make a mistake, but the world will not forgive a hypocrite. We've learnt that in the political sphere several times over. When a father displays transparency, it'll do a whole lot of good for their kids. I've known parents, one in particular, who would regularly meet with his kids and actually take them out and do father-son stuff. And when these kids were old enough to sort of talk it a little bit more than, you know, a little bit more deeper, going into their, you know, queener type year thing, these dads would go, son, I need you to know something. I'm not perfect. I'm going to let you know something, son. I'm going to make mistakes, and I do all the time. I'm not going to tell you, son, that I'm perfect. I'm going to tell you that I make mistakes, but I know where I need to go and how I deal with my problems. They would teach their sons to look at God as their ultimate hero. Jesus is the ultimate example. And when they made mess-ups, they would be open and honest with their kids about it. I've met great men who are honest about where they are spiritually and how they were open to the family emotionally as well. And in just about all those cases, the kids are really, really well balanced with even in their adult years, deep love for their dads. And there's been some big mistakes made by those dads. One family went through the problem of an affair. Dad was so imperfect that he actually made some really bad indiscretions. But the whole family rallied, found Jesus in that. He owned up and they were able to move forward. It's amazing what transparency can do. I've also seen others do everything in their power to keep the veneer of perfection intact at all costs. There was a dad in one of our ministries like mad to hide his anger at home. And his kids were in tears going, I shouldn't feel this way, but I hate him. It was a nasty situation. They'd come to church playing happy families. Looking like everything was rosy, but inside the kids are getting eaten up. And their greatest relief was when their dad actually exploded at church and showed his true colours. Because only then could the work in that man's life begin, and only then could the respect of his kids be restored. They're in a much better place now. But it took that man to actually get to his knees and go, okay, 
this is where I'm at. If you want your kids to have the best shot at maintaining the faith you as dads stand for, the, one of the biggest pieces of advice I can give after 20 years, 20-something years of working with kids, be transparent. With your wife and your kids. Let your wife know your weaknesses so she can proactively support you. And let your kids see you own up to your mistakes along the way. Never project perfection. Instead, promote trans. Let's get the band up. Let's get ready to worship God. Successful fathers will be marked by these three things. Humility, servanthood, and transparency. And we're going to come to the communion table after this song of worship. We're going to have our kids join us in a minute. And as we come to the communion table today, I want to remind you that we see those traits in the person of Jesus Christ as well.